So we're going to start at verse 12. The first 11 verses of John chapter 8 were added to the earliest manuscripts, but they still should be in our Bible because they added them and they wanted them in there and they are consistent with who Jesus is and and the gospel thread. Um, And we're going to look at that next week. But starting at verse 12, John chapter 8. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. I mean, that's just a lot to think about right there. The next verse says, the Pharisees challenged him. And that is what the rest of John chapter 8 is. And it moves into this discussion about who are the true children of Abraham. In fact, my heading's the children of Abraham or the children of the devil. And now the last verse of John chapter 8. I tell you the truth, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. At this, they picked up stones to stone Jesus, but he hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. So you get a little flavor of what's going on from that last verse in chapter 8. You may be seated. So the context of of this text is, is huge. It's the Feast of Tabernacles, which doesn't mean a lot to us. It's Sukkot to the Jews. But John, four of John's chapters, uh, John 7, 8, 9, and part of 10, are Jesus at this feast. Now, we need to know some things about the Feast of Sukkot or the Feast of Tabernacles, because it's... It's all the things that John wants us to know as he is writing about Jesus. Um, God instructed eight specific holidays for his people to celebrate over a calendar year. These holidays did not evolve out of their history. These are holidays that God, with great care, he shaped them. He designed them. And he calls these holidays my appointments. Because God is literally asking Israel to get out their calendar and schedule these appointments where God's people would meet with God through these holidays. Now, the three major holidays that that God designed and appointed are Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. Uh, those three holidays are to be celebrated at God's house, at God's time. These holidays essentially celebrated two things. First, God is a foodie. We just need to know that, okay? And you need to be okay with that, okay? Uh, Because these feasts celebrate food, Now, food, for the most part, I think is something that we take for granted. I don't think anyone today is is wondering, am I going to have enough food for this week? If you are, please 
uh, call Crossroads. We'd, we would love to help. Um, but this was a daily concern for the ancient. I mean, this is a world with no grocery stores, no refrigeration, no modern ways of, of mass-producing food. And so the food that every person ate was the food that they grew in their backyard. Passover celebrates the barley harvest. Pentecost celebrates the wheat harvest. Those two holidays basically celebrate cereal. That was a big staple in their diet. Um, Tabernacle celebrates the fruit harvest, namely the grape. Now, the closest thing that we have to this uh, is Thanksgiving. Now, imagine if we went into Thanksgiving this year where all of us did farm to table (laughs) and where six to seven months of the year is drought and we get minimal rainfall. And imagine how grateful we would be if we saw that, my goodness, I think we have enough food for the year. But that's not how we are with food. We actually take food for granted. Um, Today we have so much. I mean, fast food pretty much sums it all up for me. Uh, We just show up, we swipe a piece of plastic, Uh, Food comes to us so easily and cheaply. Uh, And and then out of that, we just take it all for granted. We're so ungrateful. But God said three times a year, you're going to travel to my house, and you're going to say thank you for what I've given to you. And they did. They did as families and clans and towns and villages and tribes and the whole nation showed up with their first fruits to say, God, Thank you for the food. You gave us just enough. Secondly, these holidays celebrate the story. God's story. Passover celebrates God rescuing his people from Egypt. Um, This is when they went from being slaves to Segula. Uh, Segula is God's special possession, which is why once they're free from Egypt, God brings them to a mountain. Here Israel is instructed to approach that mountain as a bride God comes down that mountain like a bridegroom, and there's a marriage between God and his people, and Pentecost, the second feast, celebrates that in the story. And then the story after that is, we say God's people wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, but they they didn't wander because God pitched his tent right in the middle of their tents, and he dwelled with them. And there, Israel experienced every single day the Shekinah glory of God as God appeared to them as this fiery torch and how that fiery torch led them as a shepherd leads sheep uh, every day, raining manna down from heaven and water flowing from a rock. And God turned that desert into Eden itself. And Tabernacle celebrates that. In fact, Jews still celebrate uh, these feasts. Uh, They celebrate tabernacles. What's so cool about where we are today is uh, this feast for them started two days ago. So starting on Friday, Jews from all over the world left the comfort of their homes to live in a sukkah, which is why they call it Sukkot. Sukkah is what you're looking at here in this picture. Uh, They are these man-made huts Uh, for them to live in for a whole week. Why? 
to remember their forefathers, 40 years, living in a little hut, a little tent in the wilderness. Uh, and you can see that they also take uh, great uh, pride in, in building these huts. It's a family affair. I think I have a few more slides that just show some of these pictures. Um, this is going on right now in New York City. <laughs> uh, they're, they're literally, uh, I mean, they even have uh, huts that they can deliver to you. Um, I think there's, there's one of those where you uh, have all these uh, Jewish men driving these sukkahs uh, to their customers, and they will set that up, and the whole family will live in that tent for a whole week. And it's also to remind them that heaven is not my comfortable home. It's not making lots of money. It's not the perfect vacation, the perfect marriage, the perfect family. Heaven is not the perfect life. Heaven is God with us, living among us, his tent among our tents. It's that flaming torch, the manna, water from the rock. Now, here's the part of these holidays that literally gives me goosebumps. I've counted at least eight times in the Old Testament where God calls his holiday a sacred rehearsal. A rehearsal. Like a wedding rehearsal. Which means that these holidays are not actually the main event. They are only rehearsing something much greater in the future. A greater Passover. A greater Pentecost. A greater God tabernacling among us. And see, this is why John highlights Jesus at the Feast of Tabernacles, because he's not John. Jesus is saying the main event is here. I mean, think about what Jesus does at this feast. I'll just, I'll just remind you. Uh, going back to John chapter 7, first he's three days late. Uh, then he arrives kind of undercover, but he just can't help it. He makes a huge splash. People are flocking around him. They're hanging on every word that he says. The Jews in power then see him as a threat. They try to arrest him. And then on the last and greatest day of this feast, where all the week-long festivities now are evolving to what is the Super Bowl. In fact, I was reading some things this week by a Jewish rabbi talking about the things he's excited about with, with the Feast of Sukkot. This just blew me away. This is what he says. He says, this week, a Sukkot celebration known as the celebration of the water drawing have their roots in ancient Israel. When the temple stood in Jerusalem, every sacrifice included wine libations poured over the altar, but on Sukkot, Water was also poured over the altar in a special ceremony that's actually not mentioned in the Bible, and this was cause of joyous celebration. <laughs> and he's remembering that, that celebration of the, of, of the water, and it's into that that Jesus says, I am. I'm the water you thirst for. I'm living water. And then he keeps writing. He says, the nights of Sukkot were spent rejoicing the Talmud, which is writings that date back to even before the time of Jesus, 
He says, describe how the priests would kindle fires on, the, on great candelabras. In fact, what they did is they put these huge candelabras in the uh, women's courtyard in the temple area. They were 70 feet high, and they lit these things. They were just these huge torches. That's why he says they lit up Jerusalem as if it were the middle of day. Throughout the night, pious men danced holding torches. Levites played music while crowds joined in the excitement. The temple courtyard was specially furnished to accommodate this event. And a balcony was erected for the women so they could look on and see. On this last and greatest day of the feast, when when Jerusalem is is literally lit up like it's the middle of, of the day, Jesus says... Right in that courtyard where those four candelabras are, I am. I am the light of the world. I mean, people sometimes ask me, like, now did Jesus really say that he was God? He's saying it all the time. When he says, I am the light of the world, when he says, I am living water, every Jew knows exactly what he is saying. I'm not just a God. I'm not just any God. He's saying, I am the God that the Feast of Sukkot celebrates. I am that pillar of fire that led you out of Egypt. I am that torch that shepherded you 40 years when you were in the desert. Even going all the way back to creation when God said, let there be light. Jesus is saying, I am that light. Just think for a minute what light is, because light is another thing that we take for granted. Light is the source of all life. If the sun would just go away right now, not only would the world go dark, but all life would be no more. Light is the source of truth. We call it the dark ages for a reason. Learning diminished. We call it the enlightenment for a reason because learning flourished. And the Bible talks about what the true source of, uh, of truth is. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Light is the source of beauty. I mean, think about color and, and what color really is. Color is created by all the different shades of light. And so everything that we look at that, that causes our hearts to just say, wow, is caused by light. And that's why when God said, let there be light, what next happened was there was just this explosion of beauty that take, took place and the world was created. It was good. It was beautiful. Light is also the source of joy. I mean, I hate to remind everyone of this. I'm I'm sorry that my mind's already thinking about it, but we are going to very soon be entering five months of no sun. And uh, for some of you, that is no big deal, but that is a big deal to me. (laughs) Um, 
Light is the source of joy. It's the source of delight. Do you see what Jesus is saying? When he says, I am the light of the world, he is saying, I am ultimate life. All life depends on me. He's saying, I am ultimate beauty. Uh, all that is beautiful is rooted in me. All beauty points to me. He's saying, I am ultimate truth. I'm not just a, a moon that reflects the sun. I am the sun. He's saying, I am ultimate joy, true delight and satisfaction are found in me. This is why we cannot reduce Jesus to just being a good teacher who explains God or a prophet who points us to God. Jesus is God. At least that's what he claims. That's why C.S. Lewis is so right when he says Jesus is either a liar, a lunatic, or he is truly who he says he is. He is Lord. Which means there are really only two responses to Jesus. You either crown him or you kill him. And so many of us today want the middle ground. Because in our minds, the middle ground is the safe place. It's the healthy place. But there is no middle ground with Jesus. Jesus won't let you have a middle ground. That's why when you read the Gospels, people are either falling at his feet and worshiping him, or they're picking up stones, like in our text, wanting to kill him. What about you? Don't do the middle ground thing with Jesus. He's Lord. He is God. He is the light of the world. And here's part of the reason why I think we either crown him or, or, or kill him. I mean, think about what light does. Light is a great irritant to darkness. I experienced this almost every day of my life growing up. Um, the way that my mom would wake me up is she'd say, yeah, it's time to, time to wake up. But then all she had to do is just turn the light on to our room. You know, that whole feeling of just like, ugh. Um, funny how that's still an issue with my marriage. Um, after all these years, you'd think I'd learn some things and get better at this. Uh, but uh, light, is a, light is truly an irritant uh, to, to darkness. Um, but darkness in the Bible is, is a major theme, and, and darkness is more than physics in the Bible. Darkness suggests a people who can't see. They can't see themselves. They can't see others because they can't see God. Darkness in the Bible conveys a sense of lostness, uncertainty, fear, despair, hopelessness, meaningless. Darkness in the Bible suggests conflict between nations, races, individuals, Darkness in the Bible conveys everything that is wrong in our world. Our world is dark. We live in a dark world that is more dark than we want to even admit that it is. Darkness is what the news is about. Darkness is what so much of the internet is about. Have you ever just even like, sometimes they'll put the top internet sites on 
the most searched internet sites. It just astounds me. But yet it shouldn't. How pornography is like the main thing that people are looking at on the internet. Darkness permeates our cities, our neighborhoods, our schools, the marketplace. Permeates our government. Darkness is something that that comes into our own hearts and our own lives. It, It can permeate our relationships, our friendships, our families. I mean, darkness is like this tsunami. It's this, it's this powerful force in our world. Light, on the other hand, in the Bible, is what repairs the world. That's why the Messiah would be called this. A people walking in darkness have seen a great light. Here's what is is amazing. I'm going to encourage you to read the rest of John 8 this week, but when you read it, you're going to realize, okay, this blazing torch has come again. The light of the world is, is here. And yet God's people, they are the ones who want to snuff the light out. What's going on? And you're going to see how Jesus is going to turn this discussion back to Abraham because God's entire plan to repair a a world that's gone dark, a world that is broken, it begins with Abraham and then it's going to go through Abraham's children. And halfway through this discussion, Jesus says something very profound. They say, Abraham is our father, we are his children. Jesus says, if you were Abraham's children, then you would do the things that Abraham did. Well, what did Abraham do? I mean, when you look at the life of Abraham in Genesis 12 to 22, I mean, like, where do you even start? But if you want to get to the heart of who Abraham is, go to the heart of the Abraham narrative in Genesis 18. Because in Genesis 18, three strangers show up at Abraham's tent. He just instinctively gets up and runs. He runs. He's a 100-year-old man. Man, uh, Men in that culture, even to this day, never run. It is a shameful thing for an elderly person to run. And yet this 100-year-old man runs to meet these strangers. Then he runs to kill the fatted calf. He's running to his wife, Sarah. Quick, let's put together a feast. And they put together a feast for three that would feed 30. He just lavishes hospitality upon these three strangers. He's welcoming the stranger. And Jesus says, when you welcome the stranger, the outsider, the refugee, the oppressed, Jesus says, you did it unto me. And Abraham literally did that because one of these three strangers, unbeknownst to Abraham, is Jesus. And see, what Abraham then is doing is is what so many of the Jews in Jesus' day aren't doing. He welcomed him, received him, trusted him, obeyed him. 
And they say, Abraham is our father. We are his children. And Jesus said, well, if you are Abraham's children, then you would do the things that Abraham did. As it is, you are determined to kill me. That's not what Abraham did. I ask questions like this. Why did God choose Abraham? Why didn't he choose someone else? Sometimes those questions aren't answered, but sometimes they are. The next thing that follows after Abraham extends his hospitality is this from Genesis 18. And Abraham walked along with them, the three strangers, to see them on their way. One of those three strangers, by now he knows, is the Lord Jesus. And he said to Abraham, shall, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. If you cracked Abraham open, what lies at the heart of this man is righteousness and justice. These two words, we've talked about them before. In the original language, the word for justice is mishpat. The word for righteousness is tzedakah. Mishpat, we, we, we rightly translate. It, it is justice. It's, it's giving people their due. It's treating everyone fair, fairly with honor and dignity, irrespective of class and race. Mishpat also has this, this rectifying aspect to it. it, it it's, it's seeing something that is wrong and making that wrong right. It's essentially giving people what they deserve. Tzedek, or Zedekah, which we translate righteousness, is almost really impossible, though, to translate. Because it's justice plus mercy. It's justice plus compassion. And see, for us, justice and mercy are opposites. But in this word, tzedakah, they are bound together. It's justice that oozes out of mercy and compassion. So mishpat is giving people what they deserve. Tzedakah is giving people what they don't deserve. For instance, in the story of Zacchaeus, when he repents and he says to Jesus, I'm going to repay everyone who stole from me, that's mishpat. That's making a wrong right. That's giving someone what they deserve. But that's not what he says. He says, I'm going to pay them back four times the amount of what I took from them. That's Zedekiah. It's giving people more than they deserve. It's this justice that flows out of this heart of compassion and mercy. Every time you see the word righteous or righteousness in your Old Testament, it is this word, Zedekiah. I want you to think about something. We are a people who have been given God's word, his ways, his laws, his commands, his path. Having laws with only mishpat will make you a really good Pharisee. 
Jesus said it this way. He said, you have heard it was said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. That's mishpat. That's justice. That's giving someone what they deserve. But Jesus says, but I say to you, if anyone slaps you on the face, turn to him the other also. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him take your cloak as well. That's zedekah. It's giving someone what they don't deserve. And this is why Jesus says a few verses later, unless your righteousness, your tzedakah, exceeds that of the Pharisees, you will never be a part of my kingdom. Or think about this in terms of God. If God is only mishpat, a God of justice, basically what we're left with is the God of Islam, a divine judge, a just king who executes justice, and gives us what we deserve. Now, whereas God is all that, he's also our father. And we can even make a complete mess of our life, but like Abraham, he's going to run to us. He's going to welcome us. He's going to restore us. He's going to give us what we don't deserve. Because God is more than Mishpat. He is Zedek, Zedekah. He is righteous. And see, this is why in the Old Testament, these two words, mishpat, <laughs> I don't know, I'm sorry. <clears throat> I don't know where that came from. <laughs> these two words, mishpat, zedekah, throughout the Old Testament, are paired together. to describe first God. God says, I'm a just God. I'm a righteous God. But also over and over again, these two words are what God calls his people to be. Mishpat, Zedekah. He says, for I've chosen Abraham so that he will direct his children after him to keep my way by doing Zedekah, righteousness, and Mishpat. And now we're in our theme verse, if you were here last week. See, a king will reign in righteousness, in Zedekah, and rulers will rule in justice, Mishpat. That's the kingdom of heaven. It's Zedekah, it's Mishpat together. And if you want to know what the light that shines in the darkness, the light that repairs our world, it's this. It's righteousness and justice. Do you know this light? Do you know it? Has this light of God's righteousness, his, his Zedekah, his, his justice that just oozes from mercy and compassion, has it changed you? Because what we read in John chapter 8 is the light of the world is here. And he's being revealed to the children of Abraham. And they don't welcome him. 
They want to kill him. And they are so far from Abraham, their father, that Jesus says, you're not children of Abraham, you're children of the devil. Are we a long way from Jesus? Are we children of Abraham? Mishpat comes easy for us. It's easy to be a judge who judges in the name of justice. I mean, isn't that what social media is these days? Everybody being a judge, judging other people in the name of justice. Where's the tzedakah, the righteousness that comes out of hearts of compassion and mercy? Our father is a righteous father. And he runs to us. He runs to us when we're in our most messed up state, when we've made a mess out of our lives. But when he sees us, he runs to us because he is a righteous father. And this is why Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount will say this. We translate it, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. It is literally be righteous as your heavenly father is righteous. Are we like Abraham? Are we running to strangers? Are we running to the marginalized, the refugees, the underdogs of our world with compassion in our hearts? And are we like God who are just running, running to messed up places, messed up people? Running means we're not retreating. We're not retreating. It's not about stay safe, stay home. Jesus said, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house in the same way. Let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father who is in heaven. And this is what it means to be a child of Abraham. And this is what it means to be a son or daughter in our father's house. God, I just pray that um, as you are talking to the people of your day and they didn't see you, God, that we would because you then say to them, when I am lifted up, then you'll see. When I am lifted up, then you will know. God, may we see you lifted up. And in seeing you lifted up, may we see the righteousness of God that is revealed in Jesus Christ. And may we be changed. And may we be people that bring change. May your light, God, shine in our hearts. The light of the knowledge of the glory of God, which is in the face of Christ. So that we can be what you've asked us to be. You said we are the light of the world. 
but we can only be the light of the world, God, if your light shines in us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.